Well, good to see you on a uh, glorious July that feels like July. So glad for some of those. This fall, we will begin a series, technically in September, uh, entitled Seven. And it's a series on temptation. Uh, Seven is named after the seven deadly sins, which is a list that was uh, compiled by the Egyptian desert fathers about 2,000 years ago. It's not found in the Bible as a list. Each of the seven uh, deadly sins or seven cardinal vices are in Scripture, but the list itself was pulled together uh, initially by this um, desert father called Evagrius Ponticus, who came up with what he called the eight evil thoughts. Uh, His list was modified, uh, at least ordered, by one of his students, John Cassian, who uh, sort of assembled it from carnal sins, like gluttony and lust, through more spiritual sins, like envy and pride. Uh, A couple hundred years later, Gregory the Great modified the list. He felt like seven was the biblical number, so he had to get it down from eight to seven. And then uh, not quite a thousand years after that, St. Thomas Aquinas tweaked the list again. Uh, This uh, fall, we will be looking at the definitive list of seven deadly sins. Um, And I say definitive because these are the seven sins that were reported on in the 95 movie Seven, starring Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) Pride, greed, envy, anger, sloth, gluttony, and lust. In uh, all fairness, the lists are not that significantly different. Uh, There is a little bit of confusion around the concept of sloth. Uh, Evagrius Ponticus listed it as sadness. And it was sort of an emotional and spiritual lethargy or apathy that you might say was depression. Um, The word that Gregory the Great sort of took that out and put in laziness, which then gets translated by the King James Version being a sluggard, it's just not quite right. Uh, the, The great word would be acedia, but... Nobody knows what acedia means yet. You will if you come to the series. But uh, there's a little confusion around that. And then there's also a little confusion around pride. Uh, Gregory the Great took pride out of the list and replaced it with vainglory, which is being concerned with your image and wanting to be uh, respected, wanting a lot of celebrity and, and accolades, whether you deserve them or not. Uh, that's vainglory. He put pride at the bottom, not as one of the seven deadly sins, but as actually uh, the original sin, the, the primary foundational sin that all the others grow out of. Now, I'm aware that uh, having heard this list, some of you um, may be thinking that you could do better. Um, you, you hear, you know, pride, greed, envy, anger, sloth, uh, sloth lust, and gluttony, and you think, really? Uh, someone's going to list the seven deadly sins, and they include sloth and gluttony. Uh, we leave murder, uh, rape, racism, genocide off the list, but add supersizing our meal at McDonald's and uh, hitting the snooze button uh, on Monday morning. That seems a little odd. 
Um, furthermore, you might state that your uh, most uh, frequent sins don't show up on the list. According to the last poll, the number one sin that we will admit to is gossip, followed by lying and cheating at work, worry, overeating, spending too much money, being lazy, feeling jealous, viewing porn, abusing alcohol and drugs, and doing something sexually inappropriate with someone. So, some of you look at this list of seven deadly sins that's been handed down, carefully refined over 2,000 years, and you think, um, well, I could do better. So, if that's the case, let me suggest that on your list, uh, you be sure to start with pride, uh, because (laughs) you you would reflect that you have some. Um, And secondly... Understand that the seven deadly sins would perhaps more appropriately be named the seven cardinal vices. Uh, Cardinal meaning uh, foundational or of great importance. And vice being a a habit, not a sin, but a habit that takes us in the wrong direction. Habits that take us in the right direction that make us better people would be called virtues. Habits that take us in the wrong direction would be called um, vices. And the idea here is not that these are the seven worst sins, but that they are seven cardinal sins. If you picture a tree, the roots and the trunk of the tree would be pride. Out of pride would grow the seven major branches, which are the seven cardinal vices. And out of those seven branches would come all of the other sins. And I will also say that after six months of studying um, these sins, that's been sort of my focus of attention. You know, people ask me, what are you reading? And I go, well, I'm reading about uh, gluttony, sloth, anger, envy, you know, lust, uh, those things. And they're like, wow, life of the party. Um, So I've been studying this this list for the last six months, and I think they got it right. And I am amazed at how much insight into the human condition is here. And this list was developed really not in in a systematic theology sense, but more out of a pastoral sense, even a counseling sense. And so what you read, uh, as you read through the ages are people saying, well, if you're struggling with that, my experience is that it it actually traces back to this. This is the the root of that, and you probably are going to have to go after the root issue in order to deal with this issue that you're trying to deal with. And, you know, every day, 10 new self-help books uh, roll off the presses, and some of them are the product of generously uh, years of thought and insight. Some of them are the product of, you know, a few months of insight, and some of them, I think, are just the product of one idea, uh, five minutes of insight. Uh, What we have here is something that has really been refined over a couple thousand years, and there's a lot here. There's a lot of traction. It's, It's helping us sort of take away some of the roadblocks that hold us back. And so, 
this fall, we will be um, sort of, you know, pulling out all the stops as we generally do in the fall. This will be a big deal as we did last fall with the Life of Jesus Christ campaign. There will be sermons and daily devotions and readings and small group discussions and video supplements and all this kind of stuff that all gets pulled together. And we're looking to you to jump in uh, with both feet and we are looking to you to invite friends, uh, family, colleagues, neighbors, and others to take a step forward. Yeah, this, is, this is as easy as we can make it, especially as it comes to these small group discussions on the readings that we'll have for you. This is a just add people, and everything has been done. So be thinking and praying now about who you might invite. And let me assure you, this will not be one long lecture about the evils of sin. Um, many of these vices, many of the seven deadly sins, are good things. They are gifts that God has given to us, but we are abusing them. We are misusing them. Food is a great, wonderful gift from God to us. But we can use food uh, to try and fill a hole in our heart, and that's going to be a problem. Uh, Sexual intimacy is a great gift in the parameters in which God has given it to us. It can be all kinds of problems if we let it jump the banks. For the most part, these sins fall into that category. And so this isn't, this isn't a lecture on, uh, on evil. And furthermore, this isn't, isn't going to be a motivational series of talks saying, okay, try harder. This week, don't be angry. Uh, you know, that's just remarkably unhelpful. Uh, a lot of these things that, that are, are habits, they are challenges, they, they come at a level beyond which we understand. The gospel is not a self-help project. It's, we don't get better simply by trying harder at the most fundamental levels. Right? It, is a, it is a process of spiritual transformation that is aided by the Spirit of God. But there are things we can do for that to happen, and there are things that we can stop doing to keep that from happening. And this series will be sort of honing in, looking at what uh, the church has learned over the last couple thousand years. And it all comes out of this passage that we're looking at today, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And so I want to read that for you again. I was I was going to play a, a clip out of the Bible series that, um, that came out this, this last year. I didn't, di- I didn't watch it when it came out. Um, I did watch it this week, and I was reminded uh, of what I'd heard on the news, that in this particular clip, uh, many people believe that uh, Satan looks remarkably like President Obama. And that is not helpful for uh, us and so I didn't want to head down that path in any sense today. So rather than play it, I am going to read it again for you. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, 
It's written, man does not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, if you give all their, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. For if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift, up your, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So what we're told here is that um, sort of still wet from his baptism, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit out into the desert to do combat against evil. Um, he, is, he is led there by the Spirit for 40 days of fasting and praying and toe-to-toe, hand-to-hand battle. The 40 would jump off the page for a first century reader uh, for several reasons. First of all, Moses and Elijah, so the law and the prophets, both had 40-day fasts. And additionally, the desert that Jesus is heading into is part of where the, the nation of Israel under Moses wandered around living for 40 years when they refused to enter the promised land. So there's a sense in which Jesus is the new Israel, um, uh, a new and better uh, Israel. The other thing that would be immediately obvious to a first century reader is that this, uh, this test of Jesus is sort of uh, Garden of Eden take two. Uh, on the one hand, you have Adam uh, with a companion in paradise, all his needs met, failing. And on this hand, you have Jesus by himself in a barren wilderness, uh, weak by fasting, uh, passing the test. This is is a replay in one sense. And what we see here is that Jesus does what no one else had done. Not Adam, uh, not uh, Abraham, certainly not Israel. Jesus passes the test that others have failed. Now, theologians write at great length about this passage. A whole lot is uh, looked at, at in terms of the nature of the temptations. And again, uh, as I mentioned with the seven deadly sins, a lot of these things are not bad in themselves. Satan says, turn this rock into bread. Well, a little while later, uh, Jesus is going to multiply the fish and the loaves, right? He's going to multiply bread. There's nothing wrong with bread, and there's nothing wrong with Jesus using his powers to, to make bread. But uh, this is wrong because the nature of this temptation is one that would, that would um, have Jesus worshiping Satan and additionally would uh, suggest to Jesus that there is a path forward that doesn't include the cross. So theologians look at this. They look at, they look at the passages that Jesus quotes um, in, in rebuffing Satan. They, uh, they, they look at what might have happened and talk about what might have happened had Jesus failed. Uh, there's a lot here. The big point 
right? The main point of this passage, the reason Luke includes it, is the same reason Luke has included everything else up to this point. It is to to tell us, it is to remind us that this one who we are going to be listening to teach, this one we're going to be following, is not like us. He's better than we are. He is greater. He is more holy. He, He is different than we are. He does things that no one else has been able to do. Everything around the announcement of his birth was unique. The the virginal conception makes him unique. The testimonies of those closest to him, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary, Simeon and Anna, all testify he's different. The the testimony of John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to get close to him. The voice of God speaking out of heaven, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. This is the Son of God, the genealogical record. This person is different. He's qualified. He fulfills the profile of the Savior of the world. He is a descendant of David, but he's also a descendant of God. He is the Son of God. All of these things, and now this, him doing what no one else has done, right? Defeating evil, rebuffing temptation, remaining pure, This is another piece in the case that Luke is building to say, follow this man. There's no one like him. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. He is worthy of our worship. Listen to what he teaches. You will not do better ever than than Jesus. So the case is being built, and this is another uh, piece of the puzzle. The main thing is always to keep the main thing the main thing. The gospel of Luke is is written to persuade us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world and to put our faith in him. Now, additionally, there are two other significant points that I want to be certain that are clear before we come to this table of communion this morning. The first is, um, I, want to, uh, I want to try and steer your small group discussion away from a theological cul-de-sac that you could spend uh, all your time in. And uh, I just am imagining that uh, somebody, uh, perhaps a Trinity student if you have one, but somebody is going to bring up James one thirteen, which reads, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And then say, well, look, uh, we have a problem here. If God cannot be tempted by evil, then either Jesus is not God or Jesus is not really tempted because God cannot be tempted by evil. Okay, so Jesus is either not God or he's not tempted. Round and round you will go in this discussion. Uh, So let me just give you the short Cliff Notes answer. If you want the long answer, if you want the whole answer, then you can go down the street to Trinity and sign up for a a class in theology there and get everything that you would like on this topic. I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes uh, a couple points. One, Jesus is God, right? That's the whole purpose of the book. 
That's why Luke is writing the gospel of Luke. That's what Jesus claims. That's why they put him to death. It's a big point. Jesus is God, fully God and fully man. Second, Jesus really is tempted here, as it reports in Luke 4 and as it reported in Hebrews and other places. Right? He was tempted like us in every way, except he remains without sin. How do we put these passages together? Well, it, it hinges on the unique uh, dual nature of Christ. Right? He is one person, but he has two natures, fully God and fully man. Right? This is what gets covered in the Chalcedonian definition that is tacked on to the Nicene Creed. We've looked at this. We've repeated this creed as a congregation on many occasions in which we talk about these dual natures of Christ. We cannot comprehend this. I mean, it's a mystery. We can't wrestle it down and fully understand it. But what we know is that Jesus was eternally God, the Logos, always existed as God. At the incarnation, right, he adds humanity to deity. It is, in some sense, a demotion. Right? He, he gets less by becoming more. He adds humanity to deity. He becomes part of the creation. He does that in order to live among us, to teach, to die in our place. He has this dual nature. And this is articulated most specifically for us in Philippians chapter 2, this great Christological passage where Paul writes and says that, that Jesus, and we believe he's just quoting from one of the earliest hymns of the church, that Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be seized or something to be held on to. But he humbled himself and, and became less. He became one of us and not just a man but a slave and not just a slave but a slave that would go to his death and not just his death but death on a cross, right? This whole Jesus just keeps stepping down. Well, what we're told then is Jesus exists with, with the Father, has all the glory and honor do God in heaven. But he doesn't, he doesn't hold on to that. He does not consider that something that he's got to cling to. He lets go of some of that as he becomes one of us. And here's what we can't understand. He is able, while remaining fully God, to put some of his divine attributes on the shelf and not access them. And so he can live a life just like you or me. Right? He can know fully what it's like to be human. We're told, you know, God cannot grow tired, but Jesus grows tired. Jesus as God cannot grow tired, but Jesus as a man can and does grow tired. Jesus as God can't die. God can't die, but Jesus as a man can die and does. God can't be tempted by evil. Jesus as God can't be tempted by evil, but Jesus as a man can and is tempted. He is tempted in every way that we are. Remarkably, Jesus doesn't use his, his divinity, he doesn't use his divine powers to his own benefit. 
Right? He, will, he will multiply food to feed other people. He doesn't do that for himself here. He will use his powers to heal and relieve the suffering of other people. He doesn't do that to relieve his suffering here. Right? Jesus will do things, will use his attributes, his divine attributes, to help other people. He doesn't do that for himself. He knows what it's like to be one of us fully in every sense. And part of that is to be tempted. So, <clears throat> don't spend too much time in your small groups talking about the deep theological conundrums here. Understand God is greater than we are. You, you know, we cannot comprehend an infinite God. You can't pour the Pacific Ocean into a coffee cup. It doesn't fit, right? There are things about God that we're not going to get. And, and spend your time in small groups talking more specifically about temptations and struggles and ways forward. And we get some good counsel from Jesus and his specific situation here that actually make that discussion easier to have. There are four things that we learn from, um, from this time. Number one, temptation is not a sin. Okay? Jesus is tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. We will be tempted by lots of good things that we're going to misuse. We can be tempted by evil things. It's not a sin to be tempted. Secondly, there is an enemy. I realize that some of you uh, will wince when I say Satan is a real being. Um, I don't talk that much about Satan because... um, First of all, I think that, um, that we err, as C.S. Lewis has suggested, if we see Satan or uh, demons behind every rock. Um, Satan is a limited being. He's not God's equal but opposite. He's not like God. Doesn't have, he's not everywhere. He doesn't know everything. He's a limited being. Uh, I don't think I've ever had to do battle with the devil. I don't think I do much in my life that would qualify necessarily as battle against you know, spiritual forces in terms of specific demonic activity. That's not been my experience. Tragically, I can get myself in all kinds of trouble on my own. Thank you very much. Uh, I have a broken, corrupt, bent heart. I, I am a sinner. So I don't need others to get me into trouble. But uh, we are told that there are spiritual forces of darkness and, and we would be fools to think otherwise. I don't know how you understand the New Testament. I don't know how you can say I believe in Jesus and that he's God when it, and not believe in, in this spiritual realm and spiritual forces of darkness when it's so clearly obvious that Jesus does. Number three. The third thing that we, uh, we can take away from this whole passage and it's a, a source of great comfort, is that Jesus understands everything we're up against. We do not have a high priest who does not understand what it's like to suffer temptation. He understands every challenge we have ever been up against. As a matter of fact, he understands temptations in ways that we don't. Because it's not the person who can't finish a workout who can tell you how hard that workout was. It's not a person who can't lift 300 pounds who can tell you how heavy 300 pounds is, right? It's somebody who actually completes the workout 
It's somebody who lifts 300 pounds. They know what it's like. The temptation that Jesus faces goes beyond the temptation that we've faced because at some point we tap out, right? We give up. We fall. And the only way we know how hard, how difficult temptation would be would be to never give in to it. Jesus never gave in. He understands in a way we don't what we're up against. And, and he makes intercession for us even now in heaven as our advocate with the Father. And then finally, a fourth takeaway is that um, the, the only one to get this right, the only one not to cave in, has one tool that he uses very effectively in his battles with evil. It's the scripture that he's memorized. Jesus quotes out of Deuteronomy. The one whose very words are the words of God counters evil by quoting out of the Old Testament books that he has memorized. Can you quote out of Deuteronomy? Can you find Deuteronomy? So, clearly, and I I would offer testimony to this. My experience is that in times of great testing, trial, temptation, frustration, the two things that provide the most comfort and relief and forward progress for me are Scripture that I have memorized and friends. Those are the two things that are most likely to keep me moving forward, developing virtues as opposed to falling into vices. Well, as I said, we are going to look at all of this in much greater detail uh, when we come to September and the Series 7. Right now, we have an opportunity to come again to this table. And I want to be certain that we understand the main point, right? The main point of Christ's temptation is that we have yet another confirmation that uh, Jesus is God. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Messiah. He is worthy of all honor and worthy of worship. And Jesus not only lives a perfect life, he not only fulfills the law, he not only qualifies to be our Savior, he then takes your sin and my sin upon himself and dies on the cross to pay our moral debt that we could be justified, forgiven, redeemed, adopted into the family of God. And so we come again to this table to remember and celebrate the death uh, of the one who got it right, the Son of God, Jesus our Lord. As those who are going to distribute the communion elements come forward, let me... State, as I uh, do on every occasion when we come to this table, that uh, the communion table at Christ Church is open. That means that uh, if Christ is your Savior and Lord, then you are invited to come to this table uh, and participate independent of membership with this local congregation. We believe there is a church, uh, God's church. Christ is the head of the true church. There are many congregations. We are one of them. We invite you to participate 
Um, the only restrictions that we put on this table, in addition to uh, the qualification that Christ be your Savior and Lord, is that uh, you join with us in this time of reflection and confession as we prepare our hearts to come to this table. So I'm going to pray for us. We'll distribute uh, the bread and the cup. Please take both, hold on to both, and I'll come back up to lead us in uh, taking them together. Heavenly Father, um, we cannot uh, imagine your great love. The depths of that love, while we were yet sinners, you would send your Son, Christ, to die for us. We thank you and praise you for that great, uh, unspeakable gift. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your um, perseverance in the face of great trial and temptation. We thank you that you did what no one else was able to do. Uh, You defeated evil, and we rejoice, and we honor you and thank you, and we marvel that uh, as the only one who gets it right, you would then take upon yourself our sin. Um, That's beyond us, but we acknowledge it. We thank you, we praise you, and we pray now. Um, Spirit of God, meet with us, guide and direct our thoughts as we prepare to come to this table. In Christ's name, amen.